Yeah, you, you shouldn't applaud. We just try to steal someone from another church before your very eyes. It's embarrassing. Um, welcome. And uh, that's true. That's what the sermon series is called, The Sacred Art of Not Caring. Which might sound a little odd, right? You probably didn't come to church expecting to be told to care less. In fact, nothing in your life at the moment tells you to care less. Everything is trying to tell you to care more. Uh, and so we thought maybe it's high time someone brought a little bit of balance to that. Um, the inspiration for this series, I don't know if um, that looks at all familiar to you, but uh, we've stolen, just blatantly stolen, um, the branding for a book that's a bestseller at the moment. Um, although all books seem to be bestsellers. I don't know how that can be. Um, if everything's a bestseller, what's really a bestseller? But anyway, the, um, the book by Mark Manson, you may well have known, he's a superstar blogger, whatever that is, um, and, and he's written a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Flip, It's Cold in Here, and um, the, the idea behind that being that, well, he's sort of tapping in, it's, it's a sweary, fairly shallow book that you don't have to go and read, and if you do read it, please don't tell anyone that your pastor has recommended it, um, but he's tapped into something quite interesting that other authors have been dealing with as well. Uh, there's a much better book written by an English person, which just already tells you that it's going to be great, and I would highly recommend it, called The Antidote. Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, uh, which is a great book. Uh, and there are various other authors and social commentators, people like Jordan Peterson, if you've come across any of his stuff, who they're saying all sorts of different things. But there is one central theme, which is a slightly gritty kind of dose of reality that they're trying to offer us. Uh, you might, yeah, some people call it the negative path to happiness. The idea that, like, it's not going to be perfect. You can't do anything you want to do. You, like, the sky is not the limit. You have some other more real limits, and it, because it's not going to be perfect, stop making enemies with anyone who threatens your kind of golden, glowing, hazy, beautiful version of life. Stop dreaming about your best life and planning your best life. Like, you're going to have problems. Choose the ones you're going to have. Have the right problems. You're not going to ever not have problems. And you don't get to decide what comes at you, but you get to decide your, your posture. And you don't necessarily have much control over the future, so why plan for it? But you can certainly decide the kind of person you want to be moving forward. And there's a whole lot of this kind of cold, hard, home truths that they deal out. Uh, and some of that's helpful and some of that's not. But what is starting to be interesting to me is that as you read this stuff, certainly as I've been reading much of it, I'm getting a, a sense that they're stumbling upon something hazily that Jesus has actually been saying for ages. But because of our cultural lenses, we've not necessarily been able to spot that Jesus has been modeling a different way of living. Um, and we've, we've kind of dressed Jesus up to look a little bit how we'd expect a good Christian person to look. But actually, he had a slightly more radical, uh, confrontational, inconvenient way of living uh, that these authors are starting to spot we probably need. Uh, and so that's the, that's the plan. We're going to look at how to deal with the fact that your world is telling you that you should care more, you should want more, you should buy more, you should be more, you should do more, and you should be really annoyed with people who don't and really offended by people who are doing better than you but unfairly or whatever the case is. Uh, and we might, might just need to sort of scale all of that back. So we're going to do a psychological experience, experiment. I want you to sort of feel the emotions of living in the 21st century and what they elicit in you. And so I tried to find a man and a woman who are like universally uh, impressive to people. Uh, and that was really hard on the lady's side. I don't know what that means. Um, that, that it's quite, it's, and not, not from my perspective. I think there are many impressive ladies, but it was hard to find a lady that all ladies were going to be united and thinking was great. Guys are simpler to please, it seems. Uh, and so it's easier for guys to come up with heroes than it is for girls to agree on heroes, it, it turns out. Anyway, but Mark Wahlberg is an actor, right? And a lot of guys think Mark Wahlberg pretty cool, pretty manly dude. Um, and he recently shared his 
daily schedule. This is how he lives every day of his life. And I want you to just, all of you, just like react as I read this to you. Just allow whatever comes out of you to come out of you. But this is how Mark Wahlberg lives his life. At 2.30 in the morning, he wakes up and he prays until 3.15, at which point he has breakfast. It's a quick breakfast. At 3.40, he starts his first workout. And that workout goes from 3.40 to quarter past five. Then he has a post-workout meal at 5.30. At 6 o'clock, he has a shower, which continues until 7.30. And we're not here to ask, really. But, but something's going on until 7.30 when he plays a game of golf, which is over at 8. Uh, at which point, he has a snack. And then he climbs into the cryo chamber for recovery, which I thought had to do with keeping you in a, like, almost alive state. For, but anyway, he's got one. Um, and it helps him to recover. After getting out the cryo chamber, at 10.30, he has a snack. At 11 o'clock, he has family time, slash meetings, slash work calls. At 1 o'clock, he has lunch. Only one item previous was snack, but anyway, he's he's having lunch now. Then at 2 o'clock, meetings and more work calls. 3 o'clock, he picks up the kids from school, which does make me ask questions about the family time at 11, but anyway. At 3.30, he pick, uh, so at 3 o'clock, he picks up the kids from school. 3.30, he has a snack. 4 o'clock, he has workout number two. 5 o'clock, he has shower number two. Uh, at 5.30, he has dinner and more family time. And at 7.30, he goes to bed. And he lives that way every day. So what's coming up? There'll be a range of stuff, right? Some of us are going to be mocking that and going, ah, that's just ridiculous. That's a fake way to live. Maybe those of us that are mocking it harder are probably those who are feeling a little more judged by it because we don't have the self-discipline to live that way. Some of you have a sense of longing. Imagine just being able to get your life that prioritized and sorted out and your guns that big. (laughs) Others of you might be jealous that you can't afford a cryo chamber. You don't even know what it does, but you want one now. (laughs) But we tend to... Mark Wahlberg's not a perfect example, but there is a a thing that happens on Instagram, on wherever you, in the conversations you have, where people are held up as like, you should want what they've got. You you should try to live that way. And we have a sense of like, oh, now I know what to aim at. I already had all this stuff to deal with, and I really didn't think I was doing great. And now I've just heard about Mark Wahlberg. I think I'm doing even worse. And I got a whole bunch of stuff to try and strive towards. Let's do another social experiment. So just let those emotions float around. Whether you figured them out neatly or not, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, just before World War II started, I mean, we could talk about this for ages, uh, but quick history that should elicit some emotions. Jewish people had already been wanting to go back and start their own homeland for ages and return to Jerusalem, and they had sort of started to talk to England, who was in charge of that part of the world, about going back. England backed out, reneged, and basically double-crossed them on an, on an agreement that they'd come with, and so Jewish people got stuck in, in Europe, even though they really wanted to get back to Israel. Many of them were trying to get there, but... England was stopping them getting there as World War II broke out. As rumors of the Holocaust were happening, England was preventing people from getting into, out of Europe and into modern-day Israel, which would have saved their lives. After all of the chaos of that, now Israel finally starts to drip feed back into their land, and begrudgingly England starts to let them in. But they're kind of nervous about what the Muslim occupation will say because England really has to try and keep Pakistan happy at that point. So England keeps on promising and not delivering, promising and not delivering. Slowly but surely, illegally, Jewish people start breaking into Israel, which they've been promised they could have for ages. Start with no money, no backing, no training. They start to somehow try and defend themselves against the opposition they're getting in the land. From that moment until today, they've been attacked. And every single time they've been attacked, they've repelled it and then been blamed for that war. And now today we call it the modern-day apartheid. And you can start to, like, those facts make me crazy. Like, the 
anti-Semitic, blind, bad history that people are getting taught about what goes on in the Middle East should make you feel like this is unjust, this is wrong, this should be sorted out. And every time you see a pro-Palestine sticker on the back of a car, if you're like me, you're like, do you even know the truth? And others of you might be going, shame, what an idiot, like you're not supposed to care about the Middle East. And others of you might disagree with me and go, okay, great, so he's in that camp and I'm not in his camp, which means I'm finding another church next week. Fair enough. Here's the, here's the thing that I'm trying to show you, that all the time, marketers, politicians, social commentators are trying to hook your emotions and try to get you to care about something. If I tell you a hard luck story, I'm trying to get you to feel sympathy for this person so I can hopefully try and get you to do the right thing and help them out. If I tell you some kind of saucy scandal about someone in Pew X who did, and like, they, we won't say their name, but you can probably figure it out if, you know, and, and you can tell people are gossiping when their teeth move further, closer and closer to one another, and then their teeth aren't really separating, but their lips are still moving, <laughs> as if that, like, you know, softens the blow of what they're saying. And every t- if I tell you some hectic corruption story or some great, you know, example of a, like a Mark Wahlberg or whoever you think you want to aim for, Princess Meghan maybe would be inspirational, I don't know. Um, all the time I'm trying to say, well, there's some, there's some stuff you should care about that you currently don't care about. There's some stuff that you should want, but you currently don't want enough. There's some stuff that you could be, but you're just not yet living into it. And so you need to be more, buy more, do more, or feel more outraged. And in the midst of all of that, it's tiring, isn't it? Any of you feel like you could do with a little more time? Or do you all have enough? Any of you feel like you could do with a bit more clarity of mind and peace? I know you all have enough money, um, but could you do with more energy? Could it be that all these finite resources that we're constantly feeling like we've run out of are directly proportional to the amount of cares we're taking on? Care about this, care about this, long for that, save for this, you're supposed to have that, make time for this. Oh, and then we're running out of time, and we're running out of energy, and we're running out of focus. The relationship to me seems obvious. The more things I care about, the less of these finite resources I have, my energy and focus and attention and time and money to really move things forward. And the worry for me is that we don't just let politicians and marketers do this to us. We let our nearest and dearest do do it to us. That's kind of like part of the deal. If you want to be my friend, you need to hate the things I hate. You need to care about the things I care about. You need to like Land Rovers. Like there's various stuff where like if you want to be my friend, you've got to sign up for the things I care about. If I want to be your friend, maybe that gives you the right to set my agenda for me subtly. And then we can feel like we belong and we're part of the same crew because we care about the same stuff. But like... I have so little time, so little energy to really move something forward in my incredibly valuable, incredibly short life. And yet it seems like every group I want to be part of, every hero I want to follow or celebrity I'm interested in is telling me all the time you're supposed to care about this and you're supposed to care about that and now you also need to know about Harvey Weinstein and now you also should know about fracking. Do you know about fracking? How can you not be campaigning against fracking? And what about EnviroServe? Everyone's gone quiet about that. but like, ah! Compare that to the way the man who personified love lived. There's a moment in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus' ministry is coming to an end. And he's been putting this off and putting this off and putting this off. Every time his disciples have raised this topic, he's sidestepped it. And now finally they're like... 
buttonhole him. You've got to give us the answer to this thing, Jesus. This matters so much to us. I can't believe you don't care about this. You really need to sort this out. And Jesus um, has an unhelpful response to them. Here's what goes on in Acts chapter 1. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Roman oppression, like suicide wages for the work that people were having to do, crazy high taxes, injustice. Like it was just a political nightmare. Like you and I would be forwarding the WhatsApp on. <laughs> we would be bummed about this. And, the, and the, the disciples of Jesus are going, okay, finally, you've got the power, you've got the ability. Will you please tell us, when is the kingdom going to get sorted out? When is Rome going to get booted out? When is all this injustice going to stop? Jesus says, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. So I'm not going to answer your question. And then changes the topic totally, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That wasn't the question. The disciples weren't saying, hey, Jesus, we're really worried about our ministry strategy and how much power we'll have, and are you going to help us out with power to preach the gospel better? That wasn't what they were talking about. They didn't care about that right then. They're saying, Jesus, there's a political injustice going on. There's a problem economically. This place is falling apart. We need to fix this. Don't you care, Jesus? If you loved us, wouldn't you care about this? Ever felt like you wanted to say that to someone? If you cared about me, you would care about this. Hold people to ransom. And Jesus is just so free. He just changes the topic. Oh, but the, the, the elections this year, and there's all this unrest, and do you know about the rand, and have you heard about what Eskom are doing? And Jesus just goes, there's this church faith I'd like to organize. Can we just talk about that instead? <laughs> so free. And remember, I preface this by saying, this is the man who embodied how to live lovingly. So really, you should stop to wonder, does loving people automatically mean the same as caring about what they care about? Have we possibly run two ideas together that are actually separate, that it's possible to care about people without caring about their agenda or letting them set your agenda for you? Here's another example uh, from Luke 4. We've read this before. This is just the most breathtaking example of personal boundaries you'll ever see. But if you're familiar with it, go along with it anyway. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus um, all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. So Jesus cares. Jesus is loving. Some demons came out um, shouting, you're the son of God, and he rebuked them and wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Like Jesus is fixing broken things, solving problems, healing, hurting people. This is good stuff, and it matters. Then the next morning at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. Obviously, right? He fixes broken things. He heals hurting people. He sorts out problems. And, you know, he healed 10 of the kids in grade 5 yesterday, but little Johnny missed out. And Jesus, how dare you leave before little Johnny gets his healing as well? And everyone's coming. And my in-laws, like, I've decided that after all, actually, maybe they do deserve some healing. And so I'm going to introduce you to my in-laws. And what about this thing and that thing? And all these good things to do. But, verse 43, everyone's looking for you, Jesus. All this good stuff to do. But, he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he left, breezed out of town, leaving disappointed people behind. Very unpopular, with loads of hurting people. And Jesus was totally free and felt like he could still absolutely represent love while not letting them set his agenda for him. That's the first big idea that seems to be coming out of this. You know, later on, Jesus would send out his disciples, 
And he would send them out to every town. He said, go to every town from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when you go there, heal the sick, preach the gospel, drive out demons. So Jesus wasn't not bothered that these people got healing. He wanted that stuff done. He could see that meeting those needs was a good thing to do. It's just that it wasn't his good thing to do. There are lots of good things that you could do. But you doing the wrong good thing is wrong. If Jesus had healed everyone, who would have been left for the disciples to heal? How would Jesus have ever got to the cross if he was still stuck in one town in the back end of Samaria somewhere helping out because the lists just get longer and the queues going around the door and Jesus goes, well, you know, I'll try to get there, but uh, I mean, they just keep demanding the stuff of me and I don't have the right to say no. There are good things that it will be wrong for you to do because they're for someone else to do. And there's some very good, very important stuff that you will never get to if you do every good thing that turns up at your, on your inbox, in your WhatsApp mail group, in, on when you, what you see on TV. Doing the wrong good thing is bad for you. Caring about the wrong stuff is bad for you. And let me just prove that to you, because in Matthew 13, Jesus diagnoses what this kind of allowing my mates and politicians and society and celebrities and marketing people to set my agenda and tell me what I should care about. This is what it does to you. Matthew 13. Now he who has received seed amongst the thorns is he who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and he becomes unfruitful. You were designed to be fruitful. Like Fruitful, produce good stuff that's satisfying to people, that feeds things. You were designed to fix some stuff that's broken, fight some things that need to be fought, change some things in this world. You were designed to make a difference and do some worthwhile stuff. But if you allow caring about the other things, other good things possibly, to choke out the word God has spoken to you, you won't be fruitful. Your fruitfulness is at stake if you can figure out how to not care about the things that you shouldn't care about. It's an interesting idea. Makes me nervous. How do, I, how do I work out what I should care about then? How do I get brave enough to not care about this other stuff that seems really like I ought to care about it? How do I discern the right things to put my energy into? So that's where we're going to go next. This is the last piece of scripture I want to read to you. And it's just one line out of a conversation that Peter's having about spiritual gifts. And this one line to me seems to have a bunch of keys in it for you to figure out what you should care about, right? So you're going to walk out of this church service today going, okay, I don't care about a bunch of stuff. And okay, I think I care a lot about just these few things. That's the goal. So here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He's been talking about spiritual gifts. Some people are good at this. Some people are good at that. Some people are called to do this. Some people are called to do that. And he really ups the stakes. He says, if you're called to speak and teach, teach as if you were speaking the very words of God. Peter like raises the stakes and says, you, you do it excellently. Don't do it half-heartedly. And concludes the idea by saying, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. That's the first idea about the thing you should care about. The thing you should spend the rest of your life caring about. Your incredibly valuable, incredibly short life where you only have so much energy to give, so much cares to give. The thing that you're called to care about was given to you by God. You didn't get to choose it. No one else gets to judge it or set it for you. Now, this is like a painfully simple idea. But I've spent a lot of my life thinking that I have to set the right priorities. I have to care about the right stuff. I have to 
get other people to care about the things they're supposed to care about. And I've bought into the idea that either me or other people around me get to suggest what I should care about, teach me what I should care about, judge the things I care about, and tell me that actually, no, that doesn't, that's not such an important thing to care about. How dare you care about that? There's much more important things to care about. And why are you traveling and frittering around in the, you know, backpacking when there's all these important things to do? It's a noble life that you should be living. And I've missed the whole point that the thing you're supposed to care about, that you're supposed to give your life to, I don't get to give it to you. Your mates don't get to give it to you. Your teachers aren't allowed to give it to you. Your parents aren't even allowed to give it to you. You aren't even allowed to give it to yourself. The burden that you need to carry, the fight that you need to fight, the glorious difference you get to make in the world, only God gets to give that to you. You received it. You didn't find it, didn't choose it, you received it. That seems like a big idea, bigger than the way your faces look right now. But the thing you're going to walk out of here going, well, I don't care about that, but I care about this. No one gets to tell you what that is except God. And you got it by grace. So that's the next thing. You steward the grace of God. Grace, grace means it's unmerited. It's not deserved. So God's going to give you this thing to fight for, fix, solve, this glorious thing to care about. And you can't blow it. You can't disqualify yourself from it. You didn't earn it. It's not too late. You haven't wasted your whole life, and therefore God's given up on you and used someone else. The thing that he's given you to care about, he gave to you, and he gave it to you by grace freely. You have something glorious to do and you don't get to deserve it or earn it or bail out from it or disqualify yourself from it. By grace, it's been given to you. That's a relief. That's quite cool. The marketers might have a little less success with me now telling me that I have to do this by that get there because it's like, well, I got given a different mandate. I've got a different assignment. And the people who are telling me that I'm not good enough or that I've blown it or the ones who might want to make me feel afraid or ashamed or guilty... Well, I don't have to answer to them because I didn't deserve this calling. I didn't earn this thing. God just gave it to me. Now, steward it. That's what Peter says. Steward the grace of God in your life. There's some weight to that idea. If I lend you my car and go away on holiday because of how terrifying I am and worthy of respect and how much you really want to impress me, I doubt it. You're going to, no, but even just if I lend you my car, you're going to take some care, right? You're going to drive someone else's car a little more carefully than you'd drive your own, I would have thought. You're going to make sure that it gets locked up because you don't want it stolen on your watch. You're like, this isn't my thing. This doesn't belong to me. I don't get to do it half-heartedly or waste it or damage it or be careless about it. This, this isn't mine. I'm stewarding it. So the fight in your life, the calling on you, the grace that you've got was given to you. No one else gets to judge it. By grace, you didn't get to earn it, but it doesn't belong to you, so steward it. Be trustworthy with it. And so just cycle this into relationships, right? If I think that I get to try to set your agenda for you, if I was to be so bold as to try and guilt you into caring about something, how dare I do that? When God has given you something to care about and it's yours to steward, how dare I try to distract you from the thing that you've been called to live for? How dare I try to guilt you into buying into my agenda, when God's given each and every one of you your own agenda. It seems crazy that we allow celebrities, well-shot little videos that make you want to click on them, all this other stuff. We allow these things to tell us what we should care about. When God has said, I've given you something to care about, I've gifted you accordingly, you didn't deserve it, but you steward it. 
It's going to take all of your life to do this thing. It's going to take all of your energy, all of your effort, all of the glorious skill inside you to pull this difference off. Now really, change that one thing. Stop caring about those 10 things. You were called to care about a few things and really change them. Not care about loads of stuff and make lots of noise about them. And if we could figure that stuff out, if we could get as sniper-like in our aim, you might well not end up feeling like you don't have enough time, don't have enough energy, don't have enough peace. Just a thought. Why do we get this wrong? Why are we so easily cared? Why, why, if that's English. Why, why are our cares so easily hooked? Well, how is it that it's so simple, it seems, to get us outraged about things and get us spending huge amounts of energy trying to fix stuff? I think one of the first and maybe least impressive reasons, if we're honest, is that if you can tell me that something threatens my way of life and my security, then for very selfish reasons, I'm likely to care about it quite a lot, aren't I? It's not particularly noble or impressive. The things I'm called to fix and fight in this world, I think we all know, are a lot bigger than just protecting my way of life. Surely you were designed for much more than just protecting your way of life. But if someone was to tell you a scandalous story or offer you a great product or tell you about some threat on the horizon that challenges your way of life or your sense of, I'm getting a fair deal, it's very easy to get you to care a whole lot about that. It's certainly very easy to get me to care a whole lot about something that threatens my way of life. So the first question for me to ask is, are there some things I'm caring about that I should really just be trusting God with? There's a bunch of stuff that you currently care about that God's going, I want to care about that. Get it out of your head. It's not yours to control. You can't do anything about it anyway. You're just being defensive and fairly selfish. Trust me with that stuff. That's one reason. But the other more interesting reason, there are two coming, so this is the second most interesting reason, and then the most interesting reason will be third. Um, but the second most interesting reason that we sometimes care about the wrong stuff is because it makes us feel like we belong. It's nice to be in a group of people where you all care about the same things and hate the same things. And hating is much more unifying than caring, if you haven't noticed. It feels great, doesn't it? We're all united in our scorn for that idea. And I give away some of my freedom, and I give away some of my right to set my agenda because I want to be identified with these people. Call it identity politics these days. And it's really bad. Because a bunch of people give up their right to think for themselves and be reasonable and engage with the opponent and try and work out what actually caused that to happen. And instead just goes, we hate those kinds of people, or we hate that way of thinking, or we hate that practice, and we love this practice, and it makes us feel like we're together. Once again, you have a short, incredibly valuable life. God has given you some stuff to care about that's going to require all of you if you're going to shift the needle at all in that thing. Don't waste your time letting other people set your agenda might be a good thing to care about, but it's not your good thing to care about. But that sense of belonging feels great. Have you come across the five love languages at all? If you haven't, I can't recommend them highly enough. It kind of cracks the code on how people can make each other feel appreciated. Uh, and that we speak different languages. It's fascinating. If you give me gifts, it doesn't work. I'll take them if they're nice. But it doesn't make me feel loved. It, I, for me, I have a different makeup. Others of you, it's like I need physical touch to feel appreciated, which is why your boss can never make you feel appreciated. It's not his fault. Um, I have, a, amongst a few things, quality time. Much misunderstood love language. If you want me to feel appreciated by you, if you want to connect with me, 
don't give me quantity of time. I don't have time for quantity of time. But quality of time means that you're going to be interested in the things I'm interested in. That's actually what it means, that you're going to find me valuable enough to just want to hear me blather on about the things that I'm interested in and just listen to that. Easy to, for me to warp that into, and you're supposed to care about the stuff I care about. That that would be a mistake. So when I get home, for me to feel like... like Burn has reconnected with me. I have to follow her around the house, just telling her stuff. And she's like trying to do things, and I'm like useless. If she gives me a job, I'm like still holding the half thing I was supposed to pack away when I'm walking around going, and then this happened, and then I had this thought, and then, you know, and it, isn't that amazing? And she's like, but if she was to cut me off, I mean, I can cope with walking around, following her around, um, as dishonoring as that is. But if she was to cut me off, and say, well, there's actually like, you know, something about to boil over on the stove or whatever, or like we're supposed to be... It hurts me. I'm like, no, you're supposed to be interested. You're supposed to care about the stuff I'm talking about. But it's so easy in relationships, certainly if you're wired like me, but I think all of us, to add that element of duress. If you really loved me, you'd care about this. If you really loved me, you would take on this agenda that I think is so important. Now, maybe in the most intimate of relationships, Byrne has the right to help me set my agenda for my life. That's part of what we've covenanted to one another, that we're submitting to one another, which means that both of us get to meddle in the other one's mission. But beyond that relationship, nobody has the right to hold you under that kind of duress. Say, well, if you, if you love me, if you want to be my mate, if you want to be connected to me, then you have to care about the stuff I care about. Caring about people, according to Jesus, by the way he lived, caring about people is not the same as caring about what they want you to care about. Because Jesus absolutely lived love, embodied what it means to live love, and went, I'm going to leave some disappointed people behind and go and do the thing I was called to do. So partly, we end up caring about the wrong stuff out of selfish, self-protective reasons. Second most interesting reason, because it makes us feel like we belong. Like if I just give away some of my freedom and let you set my agenda for me, then that's going to make us feel connected. But your life is far too valuable You're called to steward the stuff in your life far more wisely than that. The third reason, and to me, the most interesting one. You were designed in the image of a God who introduced himself by saying, in the beginning, God created. You were designed with a thing that the psychologists call self-efficacy. In other words, you are supposed to feel like you're making a difference in the world, like you're affecting things. It's hardwired into you. If you don't have the impression that you are changing your world and making an impact in your world, you're going to react in strange ways. You are going to need to sort of delude yourself into thinking you're making a difference because you were designed to make a difference. So if you're not making a real one, you're going to end up being easily recruited into making a fake difference. Does that make sense? If you're not making a real difference, it's easy for me to recruit you into my thing so that you can feel a little bit like vicariously through me, by association, you're making a difference in the world. Instead of making the actual difference that you were really designed to make. If your life makes you think that you're not really in control, then you will reorganize your cupboard. Well, at least I can control this. I'm going to show those clothes who's boss. And if they don't make me feel joy or delight, I'm going to toss them out like that lady said I'm supposed to. And like, like you were designed to do more than just minimalist packing. Or if I feel like I'm not really making an impact in the world, but then someone forwards me something about, like, whatever, crumbs, I'm going to sign up for that petition. I'm going to make some noise about that because it gives me the false sense that I'm making a difference in the world. I'm going to get my eating under control because I can't control the economy, but I can control what's on my plate. It's like you're designed for more than that. 
more than getting your body to look a certain way or your cupboard to look a certain way or your newsfeed to look a certain way. You were designed to make a real difference, not a fake difference. But real difference making takes time and effort and energy. It takes all the glorious stuff that God put inside you. All the gifting that he gave you is going to be required if you're going to actually change something. And revealing that, really bringing that to bear, is a little nerve-wracking, isn't it? Because if I bring my best and it's not good enough, what do I have left? And so a lot of us shadow box and we duck and dive and let marketers and social commentators and celebrities and our friends and let everyone else set our agenda for us. And we will waste our time doing seemingly effective stuff that's really not meaningful. So much of what we're currently up to in our week, using our time and energy, is not meaningful, is it? And you were designed to make a real difference, to steward the grace in your life that you didn't choose, that you didn't pick, that got given to you, that you didn't deserve, that's not yours. Your life is not yours. The stuff you bring doesn't belong to you, so you don't have the right to waste it. And it's going to take time and effort and energy and single-minded focus in one direction to change the one or two things on this earth that you were designed to change instead of caring about the 50 million things that everyone on earth wants you to care about because the cares of this world, all they want to do is choke out the fruitfulness in your life. Just think about it. If you want to make a thing grow, you've got to weed, you've got to water. You've got to, if you want to make a marriage full of love and respect, that takes time and effort and energy. If you want to raise children who are free and respectful and not consumeristic. It takes time and effort. If you want to build a church that serves its community and doesn't just look inwards, that takes time and effort. If you want to make anything beautiful, if you want to change anything in this world, you're going to have to learn about the thing that needs to be changed. Build the right relationships. Understand the people who seem to be your enemies. Get why they seem to be opposed to your thing. Recruit the people who are keen. Tell stories. Cast the vision. Celebrate when you start. Keep your foot on the gas when things start to change. It'll take the rest of your life to shift something if it's really worth shifting. And so you simply do not have time to care about anything else. And so as you walk out of here, there's some stuff that you, I hope, going to start to get clear on. I have always been offended by that thing, which doesn't mean I need to get everyone else offended by that thing. It just means that that might be my thing to fight. And I don't get to recruit everyone else, and I don't get to judge everyone else who doesn't care about stray dogs in the valley. It's not their problem to care about stray dogs in the valley, but maybe it's yours. And once you've figured out that is my thing to care about, those one, two, three things that you're going to change for the rest of your life, then there's a bunch of other stuff that selfishly you used to care about because it made me feel like I belong, made me feel safe. You just need to start trusting God with that. I'm going to care about this. I'm going to trust God with that. Everything else, you do not care about any longer. No matter how much guilt is attached when people are trying to recruit you to it. Let's stand. If you wouldn't mind bowing your head to pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, you understand the human heart. You know how to change the human heart. You know how to make us whole and brave and full of love and deeply secure. These ideas are great when they knock around in our heads, but we can't live up to them until you've changed our hearts. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work on behalf of the Son of God inside our hearts right now. Burn some passions into us. Convince us of gifting that we've suspected we've had. 
show us some steps that we need to take, even if we can't see the end, if we, even if we don't know how this plays out, we know where we want to start. And Lord, as you do that, would you highlight some stuff that we've been caring about, fearing, reacting to, trying to control, that are simply outside of our job description. And then give us the faith and courage to just let those balls drop, to just ignore that, those messages, to just say no to those things, so that like you, we can say that that is why I was sent. And as these people do that, that as this group of people, whether they know you well or not well yet, Jesus, as you start to align the priorities of their lives, that this community would start to actually change some things on this earth, leave things in a different state, move some things forward for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.